Welcome to the Truth CSGO Podcast, episode 16. I'm your host, The Truth. We're looking at Counter-Strike Global Offensive from a player's perspective. And today, as a Christmas present, because it is nearing the 25th of December 2017, a very special interview with Dustin Moret, a.k.a. Dust, analyst, commentator, and caster extraordinaire for CSGO. We've also got Toxic Player of the Week, and we're looking at the EPL Season 6 Grand Finals. Now, first up, a bit of housekeeping. Congratulations must go out to listener Bryce, a.k.a. B. Twice, a.k.a. the B. Diddy. Bryce got in touch early on in the life of the podcast, and we've been playing together. Now, two days ago, his amazing Wooz delivered unto the world a baby boy, a.k.a. the future major-winning IGL of Renegades. This young baby is called Finn, so I'll disregard all community feelings in the matter and declare this a victory for CSGO. We did it, boys. Congratulations to Bryce who's just come home now, his wife, I think, from the hospital, and uh, embarks on a new life of playing less Counter-Strike. Now, secondly, in regards to the last episode about the 16-year-old hacker, I've got a fair amount of commentary both in my inbox and on Reddit from you guys about this. It certainly seemed to get your goats up a bit, and I have to admit, this episode almost did me in. I got a fair amount of kickback from the people involved after I posted the first version of it, and there was a period of intense and exhausting negotiation to get a new version recorded which I have to admit was a bit of a shock to me. I am not a journalist. I am not an investigative journalist of any sort. And that's not the reason I do this podcast. It's basically just to be entertaining and to entertain myself. And the moment it stops being entertaining, I will stop recording it. Now, last episode got very close to making me stop, but I'm glad we were able to get some good discussions from it. For the most interesting comments, I would say find it on Reddit. I posted it on Reddit and... uh, It was a bit of conversation that happened, but one of the most interesting perspectives came from listener Stephen, who has emailed the podcast previously. But Stephen pointed out one of the great contradictions between the father and his son. If you haven't heard this episode, it's probably required viewing for this comment. But uh, if you recall, the father said, if I took the game seriously, as in me, the truth, I should just join a league so I could play without hackers. Now, as Stephen said... Why did this man's son not just join a league instead of hacking himself, especially if he truly was the rank of SEM, which is quite a high matchmaking rank, all things considered. Now, I should just point out, Stephen, like me, said he was tilted because he is only MG and tries really hard. But then he went on to say he only finds the time to play when he's done working and taking care of his family of, wait for it, six. Six. S-I-X. That's five more than Bryce. That's six more than me. This guy's taking care of six people, and only after that is he choosing to jump onto a game of CS. No wonder some little hacking shit is going to get his goat. Valve, listen to the dads. They're playing your game. Take care of them. Now, some news that I haven't been able to address yet. Semler, caster extraordinaire, has announced he's going to Overwatch League. I will talk a little bit about it with Dust in the interview, but personally, I'm very sad to hear this. People were talking about the grief he was getting on Reddit. I didn't see any of it. I'm not a huge Reddit lurker, but uh, I did get a sense that um, old Sam Daddy was feeling negative about either his life or the gig. So there's no use speculating, really. Uh, He did mention he'd lost a family member on um, eSports podcast, as I'll talk about with Dust, but um, definitely the end of an era, and it's a shame to see him go. Personally, I find watching Overwatch as confusing as someone vomiting a a bowl of fruity loops in my face, but uh, I wish him all the best. And I look forward to some of the uh, in-memoriam compilations I'm sure are going to be surfacing on YouTube in the next few months. Now, I'm going to have to skip past DreamHack Astro Open Winter, which Gambit won. It uh, seems like a lot of old news now, as does my next topic, which is... ESL Pro League Season 6, although I think there's some stuff in here that's worth discussing. It's one of the big last major events of 2017. We had some interesting matchups. Now, it's unfortunate that I'm recording this in the midst of the ECS Season Finals because I think we're going to be seeing a big matchup between FaZe and Fnatic, which will be very interesting and pertains to what I'm about to talk about. But the problem is, guys, this is a silly season. And it seems as you get older, every year it just gets sillier and sillier. 
And there's more people wanting to have Christmas parties and there's more family who want to catch up and be social and see you and talk to you and spend time with you and stop you from playing Counter-Strike. And it's not good enough. Anyway, the EPL Season 6 Finals uh, had a very interesting semi-final matchup between FaZe and Fnatic. FaZe won, won these two maps. But Fnatic are showing, were showing a, a form that I haven't seen from them in a very long time. We had Mirage was the first one, FaZe won 16-9, and then Overpass. And FaZe were just too strong on the CT side there, especially Rain. And... Um, what, what, what really uh, struck me about this is that FaZe Maps Awareness was just... Uh, sorry, not, not FaZe, Fnatic. Their map awareness was just so on point. And I'm talking really here about the trio of old. J-Dub, Crim Daddy, and uh, Papa Crims, I should say, and um, Senor Vac, a.k.a. The Flushmaster. Now, Golden and Lekker had some good moments, but seriously, I don't think I've seen anyone react with the speed of that OG trio. And this is against... Phase who are firing on all cylinders, so unfortunately it wasn't enough to overcome these boys. But Fnatic, we are going to see a bit of a resurgence, I think. Once Lecro and Golden kind of rise to the occasion and uh, the uh, the cogs of that team start uh, whirring again, I mean, there's nothing better than those guys when they're fully on form. Now, Misfits versus SK, this was a fun little matchup because uh, Misfits beat NIP and they beat North and they were suddenly on the scene. But uh, my hunch was that Misfits were only going to have a chance if SK dropped the ball, and SK didn't. They played it safe, a.k.a. they gave Misfits the respect of being potentially an upsetting team. And potentially a team that was suddenly in a honeymoon phase, or suddenly, you know, found something that uh, no one predicted. Stewie2k, take note, even the number one team in the world plays with respect at all times, as... Senor Fallen enunciated at the end of this. Now, uh, Grand Final. This was where it got exciting. This was FaZe versus SK. This was a match that we already, that we were, we were hoping to get before the end of the year. FaZe was looking far tighter and better as a team. Uh, better strats, better comms. I'm confident uh, now that um, Carrigan's got what it takes. Or perhaps it's Robin. It's hard to tell who's got, um, who's really got his uh, runners on in terms of the technical aspects of this team. Either way, it's starting to mesh a lot better. And I actually felt really good about them going into this match, which hasn't really been the case for a while, especially in regards to them versus SK. And one of the reasons I like them so much, since seeing them at IEM Sydney, where the cohesion of SK was you know, far superior to uh, FaZe at the time, there's been a thrill at seeing them play because an element of luck and pure personal skill has basically been the game changer for them, round in and round out. But now for the first time in some of these group stages, there was some real cohesion coming out. And uh, one of the cases in point was their Mirage game against Fnatic. I actually said it's probably one of the maps you, you might want to go back and watch because it was a lot of fun. Now, this was a best of five. Went to four maps. Map one, Inferno, phase one, 16, 13, back and forth a lot. Both teams had a good mix of strats and defense. Everybody says that um, this is not such a strong map for SK and this is one of FaZe's best maps. I don't know. I think SK are actually pretty good at this. Taco is very strong in pit. But um, I think the real difference maker in this match is Rain. And Raiders really solidified his moniker as King of Boiler. I don't know if anyone's actually called him that, but I hereby dub him King of Boiler because that man has just taken that over. And he sort of performs a similar role to Fur uh, on the T side here. But um, Rain is dirty. He's dirty. He mixes it up, but he's always dirty. He's in those apps and he's sneaking around. And before you know it, he's sort of gotten a frag. And that's dirt A. That's dirt A-Y. Because there's nothing clean about the way that guy plays. And I think Inferno is one of the most interesting, uh, sorry, entertaining maps that FaZe are going to be playing for the next few months. Next map was Overpass. SK won this. And as uh, YNK pointed out, Unfortunately, FaZe were a bit too afraid of Fur here. Didn't really challenge bathrooms much, which meant that they had a whole chunk of the map they weren't getting any map control on. Map three was Mirage. First half went 12 to 2. B 
because of Phase's T-side, which was absolute dog feces. I don't know why Yanko keeps talking about them as if they're good on the T-side. Maybe against teams with poor communication, but not any team that has proper communication, aka the octopus that is SK. SK just look like a hive mind here. No one really has to do any big plays. It's just reacting fast to Phase's fairly obvious strats and then making sure to retake in pairs. Nico in this game was one, oh sorry, by, by, by the half, the first half, was one for 14. That's one kill, 14 deaths. That strengthens my conviction that he's the one who really needs the sports psychologist. I mean, who ends up with that hectic a score unless you are tilted off the face of the planet? At some point, you get another kill, surely. I've watched a few POVs of SK and Mirage recently, and one thing I would say that's been really helping my matchmaking games on Mirage, and I might recommend this to you too, is just purely spreading out, especially if you're not on a five-man. Like Maybe you've got two, maybe you've got three. Get everyone to spread out at the start. Don't all bunch up in one bomb site unless you're going to hit it straight away because the terrorists have the better defensive positions for the places where CT challenge, like B-Apps, Palace, a main, etc. So wait for your other team to make mistakes, right? Make, to make the dodgy push. Then if they do, punish them. And if they don't, well, then you can all go together or split the one site, which is the same result as just pushing immediately, except with the added benefit of CT having used basically, you know, tons of their utility. Now, this, this relates to a point that I've made a few podcasts ago, which is um, an old matchmaking strat of uh, Fallen's, which is, hey, everybody go around at the beginning of the map, do what you like, get a pick, spread out, and then we'll all go A at 40 seconds, or we'll all go B at 40 seconds. Now, Because this is just a simple numbers game at this point, right? It's like counting cards in blackjack or poker. It's making sure that statistically you've got the best chance of winning the game. In fact, just doing this in my games at the level of anything from Nova 2 to MGE in terms of who's on their team, and saying to the team at the start to spread out has made a huge difference with the win rate on T-side Mirage. So if you're in the same boat as me, Give that a burl. Map four was train, CT side. Oh, sorry, I should say SK1 Mirage. Uh, now, map four and train, the CT side for phase went absolutely atrocious. They look severely rattled. Carrigan at this point should really be rallying his team, bringing up their spirits. But Nico is one to eight. By the time that SK are up eight nil, this is an unhappy guy. I'm just wondering at this point whether Carrigan is warm enough to be the best IGL for this team. Pure speculation. It could be that um, Robin's letting the team down. It could just be that... These are young men, and once they're tilted, uh, no amount of um, you know cheering them up is going to work. So I wonder if part of the way Carrigan leads is through humour, which for someone like Nico, who rarely smiles and doesn't even make eye contact in interviews, this could be a destructive thing. He's a young kid with a huge amount of pressure on his shoulders to be the top fragger in a team of top fraggers, I assume with a huge salary to ensure that he does that. That's a lot of pressure. What is he, 21, 20? And, uh, you know, it's not for sure that this is the case, but not making eye contact with people can be a sign of social anxiety or depression. And it's fairly commonly accepted that behind anxiety is depression, behind depression is anxiety. Now, I don't know Nico at all, right? Pure speculation. I can only guess about him based on very rare interviews. Uh, but I don't remember him acting like this in previous interviews. And, and I'm talking about the interviews he gave in in these uh, season finals. Anyway, for whatever reason, I don't think he's happy. And if you're not happy, there's anxiety. And anxiety is poison for CSGO. Absolute poison. So I think that's an issue for FaZe. Anyway, they came back with six straight rounds, mainly because it seemed Guardian went over to A site instead of B, which he didn't seem to be able to hold. This is a reminder. We're on train. Guardian, stay A site. And they won the first four T rounds, but then rushed on what they thought was going to be an SK eco. And they just rushed all their ecos as well, not even giving SK the chance to make any mistakes. This is impatient. There's like $250,000 on the line. Wait a minute, that's 60 seconds, right? 60 seconds can be worth $250,000. And plus, when they're holding a site, it doesn't appear like they're communicating with each other. They play like a high-ranked random team. Taco was actually playing very well, which didn't help. One thing I noticed a few times... Players were adjusting their outer headphones. Actually, this actually became a, quite a proper thought at one time because Fallen took off his outer headphones a few times and adjusted his inner earbuds. And uh, at one time it happened whilst Henry G was commentating and uh, he wasn't saying anything compromising at the time, but a second later he talked about the force buy that FaZe might do. And I feel like this shouldn't be possible to get a hint about your opponent's tactics by hearing the commentary. Now, people brought it up on Reddit for the gazillionth time, 
But they were uh, um, talking about the soundproof booths so as to stop the crowd being heard. But what about the casters? I noticed this several times, and it was just like, what? surely this should not be allowed. As I said, this is $250,000 at stake. Fallen's adjusting his headphones multiple times, whereby he takes off the outer headphone that stops the sound getting in, adjusts his inner earphone, and potentially hears information about the type of buy that FaZe are doing. It, I mean, it boggles the mind. What? When is this going to change? Is it, is it when the tournaments become $2 million tournaments? Anyway, finally, SKA victorious. 1916 after some amazing clutchy rounds. And although there were some great moments, I didn't think this was the best best of five of the year. Might have been because I knew FaZe didn't win this map. And uh, that was because YouTube Live does not have a an invisible time bar, which means that if you know it's a best of five and you can see how much time you've got left, there's absolutely zero tension. YouTube Live, you need to get an invisible time bar. Obviously, I'm talking there about the people who've missed the game and are watching it on the replay. Now, uh, according to Lurpus, excluding pistol rounds, FaZe finished the grand final going 14-33 to 33 on the terrorist side, including Guardian's Miracle Knife. Oh, Guardian did an amazing knife clutch, and SK's save round. That means they only won 30% of their terrorist rounds. You cannot win that way, as Lurpus said. Now, this was just business as usual for SK. It could be that they feel like uh, underdogs being from Brazil but living in the NA and playing often in Europe, but I certainly haven't seen them that way for a long time. Fulham has to be the most self-assured person in esports. I've said it before. No news there. What will be news is when Optic win the major come January, despite the fact that HS gets sick and his hair has to stand in. But overall, I think this was a positive note for FaZe. Definite improvements in the way they played as a team. It's obviously going to take a fair bit more time until they have the same chemistry as the core of SK who've been playing together now for two years. And poor old Pasha Biceps, shortly after this final was played out, tweeted, Someone's win tournaments, some change diapers at home. (sighs) That's for you, B, twice. Now, let's move on to the shank of this episode, an interview with Dustin Moret, a.k.a. Dust. So for all those noobs who haven't heard of Dustin or haven't heard of Counter-Strike and have stumbled upon this podcast erroneously, Dust started out in CSGO in 2012 as a play-by-play commentator for ESEA. I'm reading this off Liquipedia. He stayed there until 2014, and in January 2015, he began to work with Sevo and MLG for the X Games Aspen qualifiers, as well as the partnered Sevo MLG Pro League. There he moved on to, over to a color commentator and analyst role, Continued with Sevo in 2016, worked with them for their Pro League Season 9 finals, and he's also had this vlog series on his YouTube channel and an interview series. It's called The Hype. Check that out, because there's some great archived content there, some really fascinating interviews with people like um, Nothing, people like uh, Moses, and uh, they really stand the test of time. Now, he's also been doing some writing as a freelancer for companies such as iBuyPower and Splice, but this year... We've seen a lot of him, and I'll go into some of his credits from this year, and I hope you enjoy the interview. I am here with CSGO caster, commentator, and analyst extraordinaire Dustin Dust Moret. Thank you for talking to me today. Yeah, man. Uh, Glad to to come on. Now, this year's been huge for you, and I'm only going to list some of the events you've been involved with. DreamHack Austin, DreamHack Tours, DreamHack Summer, DreamHack Masters, Malmo, the European and America's qualifiers for E-League Premier, the CIS Miners, iBuyPower Masters. Not to mention an absolute treasure trove of vlogs on your YouTube channel about the scene. What's been a highlight for this year for you? Um, I guess the highlight for me this year is probably getting to just work a little bit more regularly, uh, as well as getting to work with a new company, working with DreamHack. They provided me a lot of work this year. And they're a company I've always, you know, well respected. I've always enjoyed their broadcast. And so getting to be a part of them this year was a lot of fun. I guess if I had to pick one event that I had the most fun doing, it's probably DreamHack Summer. Uh, getting to do a DreamHack event on Swedish soil uh, is just something special. It's their biggest uh, of the DreamHack open events as far as, you know, how many people are there and 
you know, I got to commentate the grand finals with Vince, or some people may remember him as Metis, uh, but he goes by Vince now. And we got to, you know, cover Fnatic versus SK on Swedish soil. So obviously, all the Fnatic fans are there. And, you know, SK was like the best, one of the best teams in the world. And it went all three maps. And it felt like a broadcast, even from, from our perspective. And so, yeah, I guess there was kind of like a special feeling getting to the cast of finals for DreamHack in Sweden. Richard Lewis and um, Thorin were talking about how DreamHack was sort of the, um, in, in the most recent podcast, how DreamHack is sort of the alternative to the bigger um, or more, I guess, commercial tournaments out there. Now, you, you've been in the scene since 2012, at least with CSGO. Is that still how it feels, the DreamHack tournaments? Um, I mean, the thing is, I've never really gotten to work for like the big ESL or IAM event, so I'm not really sure how that feels. But certainly, DreamHack, I think, has always been considered a little bit more open, a little bit more kind of loose, so to speak, I guess you could say. You know, I, th I think you get away with a little bit more than maybe you would in a more like uptight, you know, buttoned up broadcast as far as, you know, what comments you might be able to get away with or just kind of the environment, like how, how it's a little bit more relaxed. And it's also just because there's really no separation between yourself and the 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 patrons uh, at a DreamHack open event, right? I mean, we're pretty much just on the floor in the middle of all the BYOC halls and different sponsor booths and seating areas, and you kind of mix in with all of those people, um, like you know, just walking around. Like it's not like a stadium event, right, where you're pretty much on stage and then everything else is kind of separated away from you. It's all kind of mixed in together. It's a little bit more closely knit, and so it has just a different feel to it. That 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 sounds like it could be. I mean, he could get groped by fans. Oh, it would go right? horribly wrong from a security perspective, I'm sure, but maybe we just haven't hit that level of popularity yet to where it's that much of a concern. I do worry, though, if, if it's going to take something happening before people will realize that maybe that is a little bit concerning. Because the thing is, it's great to have access to fans and great to be able to meet and interact with them. You know, I personally enjoy that. I'm sure players do as well. But sometimes you gotta you, you only have a quick time to go, you know, use the toilet or something. you got to get back to work. And if people are kind of interrupting you on that path it can sometimes be an issue and sometimes you do just want a little bit of privacy you just want to kind of be able to keep to yourself a little bit without having to mix in so i wish hopefully there can be some type of middle ground that gives the ability for for fans and and you know talent and players and stuff to be able to interact but also to be able to kind of give those people also some privacy and some ability to you know maybe feel a little bit more secure so to speak well, now you're doing these sorts of events and working for DreamHack. I'm sure you've got a lot more fans than you used to. How does that feel? Yeah, I mean, I saw like a pretty big spike in growth, I guess, actually last year in 2016, which was mostly off the back of doing a little bit of E-League Season 1, like in the early part of the year. And that kind of catapulted me into doing a lot more analyst work, like desk analyst stuff, which I hadn't done before. Like the first desk analyst gig I had was the SIVO finals right before E-League Season 1. Uh, and be because of my performance at uh, the SIVO the finals and because Thorne was having some visa issues to get to E-League, that's what really opened up the door kind of last minute for me to do E-League season one. That was not the expectation. I kind of found out that I might have a chance to go at the after party talking to Richard Lewis from the SIVO finals just a few weeks before E-League kicked off. Um, because I had done like one desk segment at the SIVO finals. I was mostly commentating up until that point. I did like one desk segment with Richard and Thorne, and it went pretty well. And, you know, some unfortunate circumstances for Thorne kind of led to them needing a, 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 you know, a sub for a little bit. Um, and so I got to do that. And from there, that kind of launched me into doing stuff for Gfinity and ECS and a couple of other tournaments like Northern Arena. And then this year, you know, I was able to finally start working with, with DreamHack. And so, yeah, definitely I get a lot more work the last couple of years than I've ever gotten before, uh, which is was nice. Certainly hit a couple of bumps in the road. So I, I certainly feel like I kind of took a couple of steps back at one point, like really late last year going into 2017. But I've tried to kind of persevere through that and just kind of keep focused and just keep trying to grind and, and do as much as I can. I mean, I pretty much accept every opportunity I get and just try to use that to grow. Um, I'm only really limited by the opportunities that are available to me at this point. Like, you know, I'm definitely willing to work hard and work the long hours and do what I need to do because, you know, this is this is what I want to do. Well, these, these steps back last year were these professional steps back. 
Oh, uh, I mean, obviously, I took a pretty big hit, I guess, reputation-wise, after the, all the Smith drama that happened last year, um, which was a mistake on my part. And, you know, I've done my best to make amends for it. And some people have either accepted that or, or some people won't. Uh, the players are fine. You know, there was never an issue there. Uh, and it wasn't probably as bad as some people made it out to be. I think I was just kind of the last domino and like a chain reaction of things that were going on for the past few months because uh, a lot of people were making comments. So go ahead. I, th- I thought it was the players that the, the problem where the problem was. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously uh, they were getting upset about it and there were some comments on social media. But, you know, I was able to speak to them and, and rectify those issues. Um uh, but the community did, still didn't really seem to take into it. And the fact that extra content kept coming out, like, and so it didn't go away, like it kept getting brought back up with like a new video would come out, like a, some spoof video or some parody video would come out making fun of it again. And so it just repeatedly kept coming up over and over and over again. And even to this day, um, people still are upset about it. You know, my content, for example, doesn't do as well as it used to. And I think it's due in part to that, but there's really nothing I can do about it. Like I said, it was a mistake that I made. I've tried to make amends. And in what way was it a mistake? Uh, I mean, I just think it doesn't, doesn't fit my style. You know, I'm not known to be the very edgy and, uh, you know, that I'm not known to, to be that. So I think it was just me kind of doing something that it was out of my element and something I wasn't really comfortable with. I kind of allowed myself to be peer pressured and self pressured into it because I was hitting a point where, yeah, people were respecting me because I had done some some stuff with E-League and some other gigs and I was proving myself to be knowledgeable and be able to bring insight to the table. And I think a lot of people respected that. But also, I, I guess some people kind of critique me for being a little bit too cut and dry, a little bit boring. Um, you know, like a resident sleeper meme, kind of like Yanko used to get. Um, so I kind of got in my own head thinking, well, shit, like I can't just keep reciting facts and, and all and insight all the time. Like I have to be entertaining as well. Uh, and so I kind of tried to be like a little bit more, you know, of a jokester and a little bit more edgy and it just didn't work, you know, and it, and, and I think it, it was a little bit, uh, it wasn't criticism anymore. It was a little bit of uh, just a bad joke. And I think other people can own that. Like, I think other people are really good at being edgy and it is entertaining. So and I have no issue with it. I don't think the joke itself was necessarily too harmful, but it just didn't fit me. Like it wasn't what I was known for. And I guess it was a good mistake in the sense that at least I kind of learned where my boundary was and I learned a little bit more about myself and what I'm more comfortable with and what I enjoy doing. And so I've been able to make adjustments since then. Um, and, and that's really just kind of the end of it. It's really interesting to hear because I, I had a question down here about an interview you did with eSportsify from June 2016 where you actually mentioned that you were trying to work on speaking your thoughts and not being as reserved and not being afraid of what others think so much. So it seems like that mindset sort of led to... I guess the Smith thing. Like, are you still kind of trying to 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 do that, or have you or have you retreated more into your shell? I think I did kind of backpedal a little bit more towards what I was doing, like more in the early parts of 2016, as far as just like really trying to focus on being very research driven. You know, try to spend a lot of time reviewing demos and stats and content, interviews, whatnot, trying to you know learn as much as I can about these teams and players and be able to try to bring a little bit of extra insight to the table. Particularly, I try to bring more tactical insight, um, try to maybe talk about how a team's been making adjustments to their strategy lately, or maybe some new innovations they've come up with, some new executes or smokes or something like that. So I've tried, I've tried to really just kind of get back to my roots in that regard, but at the same time, still trying to find a balance of, of trying to also still find ways to try to be more entertaining, still kind of lighten the mood a little bit, maybe still kind of take some jabs at my fellow talent, but just you know the just not go so overboard you know make sure it's like fun and and lighthearted and not something that can be perceived as being just hateful or spiteful um also it's just it's been kind of crazy because i've just had such a shift in role you know like i've spent most of 2016 as a desk analyst and for this entire year of 2017 i've only had one desk analyst gig you know i've done a lot of commentary this year and i've heard you say that anal- being on the desk as an analyst is is where you think your strengths lie i think just being an analyst at heart is where my strengths lie and i think that 
color commentary and desk analysis are two different mediums to express that. I think you focus on different topics depending on what role you're in, but still at heart, it still requires the same amount of research and the same kind of mindset, so to speak. Um, so I, I personally don't care either way. I think that I've been received better as a desk analyst by maybe folks out in the community and maybe to some degree my my strengths are more focused on analyst desk mostly just because of maybe like my technical skills as a commentator may not be as high as as, as some others and and so in that regard as a desk analyst maybe i just am better technically um but i also think that for me since i like to focus on tactics and strategy so much i feel there's a lot more room for that as a commentator than as an analyst as an analyst you spend a lot more time identifying things like uh results or a map pool or you know providing context you know what have these teams and players been up to lately setting setting up the game you're about to watch whereas in the match itself is where the tactics really come out um so yeah i i since i enjoy tactics so much i mean i've you know enjoyed commentating a lot but for me it's just about being flexible i enjoy just being a part of the broadcast and so however i can do that um it's fine with me going back a point i love it when you make a joke in your broadcasts and I love it when you lighten up what you're doing. I think it really works and, and maybe it is, maybe it's that you found a really good balance now. So props to you. Well, it just depends on who I work with, the chemistry I have because me and Vince have worked together a lot this year and I think we just kind of got more comfortable uh, being able to do that type of thing, particularly in matches that are slow or are very one-sided. You have to still try to make those games fun to watch because it's not fun just watching someone get pounded for 16 rounds. You know, you got to be able to bring something to it. And so I think that comes with it, um, just being able to bounce off each other a little bit better. And I think it's just also me, you know, making more adjustments to how I commentate. Um, mostly just slowing down was the biggest thing. Gave me more time to think, gave me more time to speak more, like, clearly and concisely. And I think that helped out a little bit as well. How did you work out how to slow down? Just focusing on slowing down. I've even like had co-commentators. I've even told them like, "Hey, dude, if you if you're listening to me, cast with you, and I'm talking too fast, give me give me some type of like signal or you know, let me know so I know." Because that was a big problem. You know, like, sometimes I would just talk way too fast, and so it'd be hard to understand me. It would also cause me to mispronounce words or pronounce words poorly to where it almost sounded like I was mumbling. And, and that was a technical issue I had to fix in my, my commentary from the early part of the year to, to now. And then the other part was just being less redundant. Like I would make a really good point and then for whatever reason I felt the need to just kind of repeat that point and it just became redundant. And I needed to move on to the next topic, right? I needed to move on to the next point. I needed to come up with something new. Um, and so that's something else I've kind of tried to work on as well as also being less reliant on my notes. I feel like sometimes I would get way too deep into the research I've done instead of focusing on the game right there in front of me. And so I was about finding a balance of how do I bring in the research I've done? How do I bring that additional insight? But how do I make sure that I don't let that overshadow the game itself? So that, that's a lot of the things I've tried to work on. And I think I have made strides in those areas, and people seem to have thought I improved as well the last couple of events I did this year. Do you have any exercises you do before you start a broadcast? Vocal warm I mostly just go over my notes. Um, I don't really do vocal warm-ups so much. I mean, maybe some, like, focus on breathing from my diaphragm, you know, type things. But it's more of just kind of talking with my co-commentator, maybe saying, hey, you know, I can bring some information here if you want to throw that in. So maybe before we go live, that'll allow them to better craft a question for me or something to drive a conversation. But it's mostly just about me kind of looking over my notes a little bit and maybe trying to think of these are the types of things I'd like to bring into the broadcast. But, you know, I, I obviously need to, like, make sure I fit them in at the appropriate time. Um so it's one of those things where like you over prepare probably, but it's obviously a lot better than under preparing. And so maybe I only get to use, you know, 20 or 30% of what I wrote down, but at least it's there to have to drive the broadcast, you know, when it's, when it's needed. I've heard you talk about how your girlfriend and family, but your girlfriend especially have been massive supports for you while you've been trying to make a career out of full-time commentary and analysis. Who's your girlfriend, and does she have a sister? <laughs> uh, she does not. But uh, no, I mean, 
like certainly all of my family and friends have been fairly supportive of, of what I've done. You know, my mother, you know, before she passed, uh, was, you know, vital to, 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 you know, me, you know, kind of getting that reassurance and that positive reinforcement that, you know, doing what I love doing was worthwhile. I mean, she, she obviously was also a realistic voice. Like, you know, you should definitely go to school. You should definitely get a degree. You should definitely have a plan B. Uh, and, and those are all valid points. And I certainly tried to make sure that I, I did those things. But she still certainly was always proud of me. And she thought it was really neat. And uh, like I said, up until the day she passed, she was always behind me. Uh, my, my dad's been behind me. Other friends have been behind me. Even in times where I've been like in a tough financial spot because you know maybe that I had like a huge gap between gigs uh, I've been able to to get help in, in those regards sometimes um, it's been a stressful kind of up and down past few years you know before I didn't really care as much because I was doing it as just like a hobby while I was going to school but these past couple of years it has been my primary focus because um, I, I wanted to give it all I had for you know as long as i could to see how far i could make it that way even if it doesn't work out i can at least sit there and say i did everything i could you know i put all i could into it i tried my best and if i succeed great if i failed at least i can not have any regret that i didn't try what's it going to take for you to make you feel like you succeeded i think just having a more consistent workflow just you know feeling like i'm not just living paycheck to paycheck you know being able to like make more of a comfortable living out of doing this, whether it be on a broadcast or whether it be, you know, doing content or whether it be working behind the scenes in production or, um, in, in like communications fields or something in the industry, just being able to find something a little bit more stable in general, I think would be where I feel like I finally succeeded. I and mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like, I don't feel like I've not succeeded at all. I've certainly made some strides in the past couple of years, and it's still something to be proud of what I've done already. But like, I, until I get into a state where I don't feel like I have to worry about money, I think is is where you, I can at least feel more comfortable and more stable. Do you think at that point you'll pop the question? Oh, I have no idea. That, that's a that's a whole set. I think that has been certainly something that has limited me. Um, like I would certainly not. I'd feel kind of weird committing to someone like that and not being able to support that financially the way I want to. I think that is a big part of it. Like just getting, I think a lot of my things, I mean, certainly I've had a lot of issues like with family problems and, you know, other relationships, you know, everybody goes through that though, right? Everyone has complications in their life, but I feel like I have for the most part that most of my life pretty well set. Um, but it's really just the career path thing that is the the, the scariest and, and most, uh, I don't know, like the, the, the most unstable part of my life. And so trying to figure that out, especially since I feel like I'm getting a little bit older. And I'm, I'm still not old, but I'm also not, you know, 18, 19 years old anymore either. And, and so I think that that certainly adds a little bit of pressure to it as well. You know, I've been out of college now for, you know, two, three years and so before it was like, oh, I'm in college. That's my main focus. You, you know, it doesn't really matter. But now it does, right? Because now I'm in that next stage of my life. I've also read online that you've suffered depression. Um, now, first, let me say, uh, me too, brother. And I know that you know that you are not alone in the company of gamers, obviously. But I'm curious because you've got a really positive energy on your broadcast. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that? I mean... I, it's not like I've been clinically diagnosed with depression or seen a doctor for it, but it's certainly there's certainly been times throughout my life where I have hit some low lows. You know, when the whole community's you know against you, like after the whole Smith incident, yeah, I hit like a pretty low point because I was convinced that that was the end. Like I didn't think I'd get hired anymore. I figured like, oh, all these terminal guys will see all these people hate me and they won't hire me anymore. And like, you know, I thought that that might have been the end of the line. Fortunately enough, like all the work I had done up until that point. And the fact that that wasn't really perceived as that big of a deal by most TOs meant that I still did get hired a lot for, for 2017. And so... TOs is team owners? Our terminal organizer, sorry. (laughs) Um, Sorry about that. Uh, Anyway, so yeah, I hit a low low there. Also, uh, my mom passed away like in very early 2015, like a month before I went to an event for SIVO. And that was a really low point in my life because she was so important to me. And... 
um, yeah, that was that's tough. Um, certainly, I've had other things in my life. Um, you know, other like relationships get complicated and other things happen between friends and whatnot, you know, just the normal struggles that people go through. And yeah, again, it's just super stressful being a freelancer in esports. It's very competitive, especially in CSGO, where we have so much talent, particularly in broadcast. It becomes harder to find gigs if you're not at the top. Um, and so between all the stress and, you know, different things going on in my life, in my personal life, yeah, like the, certainly you hit some lows and you, you start to you know, feel like the whole world's against you or whatever, and you start to feel like you are stuck and you're not making any progress and you're just kind of in limbo. Um, you know, especially me, like sometimes I would just be at home and I would I would just, I mean, yeah, I'd go outside, I'd go play with the dog, I'd go to the gym, but because my work is either working from home or, you know, traveling to an event, if I wasn't at an event, that means I was just, I felt like I was in a prison in my own room, if that makes any sense. Like I wasn't really getting out there and, and doing as much as I should have been at times. So yeah, sometimes things would, would suck, you know, it would feel like, uh, there was no escape. Like I had hit this low point I was never going to climb out of. But I think the fact that I've repeatedly eventually sorted things out and things have improved that I've kind of started to see, you know, like, yeah, even if I'm in a rut now, I can get out of this. Um, maybe like a development of confidence or something, and, you know, also, I think I just handle things better. Like, I think before I let every single negative comment impact me that I would see on Reddit or whatever. And I think now I'm a lot better at filtering out the nonsense and just focusing on criticism I think is valid and constructive and being able to apply that to myself. But then just disregarding stuff that's like hateful and insulting and just being like, yeah, whatever, you know. Um, so I think it's just been a learning process, just like a, a learning process of how to be a better broadcaster is also a learning process of how to handle, you know, the other aspects of, of, of life better. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, it sounds like you've come a long way. Yeah. I'd like to think that my, my mentality now is a lot better. I think I'm a little bit more confident than I used to be. I, I think that my, um, my focus is a little bit better and I don't know. I, I just think that I handle things better than I used to. Yeah. Was there a critical moment when you found like you were able to deal with negative comments online better or has it just been a process over time? It's just been a process over time. There's no particular like epiphany that I had that allowed me to uh, be better at it. I think it was just over time kind of like learning that, you know, I'm, if I'm just going to beat myself up every single time I see something negative, then I'm just going to beat myself up forever. And it's not going to do me any good. Also just kind of learned like over time that being a negative, um, didn't get me anywhere. I didn't gain anything from it. Like, are we, does it matter what language I use here? Or is it? No, this is, uh, this yeah. Is... Instead of being a fucking whiny bitch on social media, which did me no good. I used to do that all the time. I just have some sappy ass tweet about, Oh, I didn't get this or all oh, this happened. <laughs> Why me? Like that didn't do me any fucking good. Nothing, nothing was gained from it. You know, maybe I got a little bit of sympathy from some people or something, but it's not like it helped me get more work or it helped me progress. It just didn't do any good. Like initiating people insulting me did nothing for me. Was, nothing positive came from it. I just felt like shit, you know? So it's one of those things where it's like, well, you know, over time I just kind of learned it's not worth it and it's much better to try to stay positive and focus forward and you know yeah just you know try to be as positive as possible and patient there's a good lesson for the kids out there if, if you act like a victim people are going to treat you like one right I mean, and even if you are, like, even if you feel like you have been wronged, and even if you were objectively wronged in some way publicly crying about it typically doesn't do you much good um, there are certain cases where it is like, you know, someone's like exploited you or done something completely unethical and you need to like out that person for it. So, so people are aware, like spreading awareness of people being unethical, but out, but I mean, it, the example I mean is, is someone's just like insulting you and you bitch about it. doesn't, doesn't do you any good. Mm. What does do you good in that situation? Mostly just ignoring it or just like filtering it out in my head like i said just kind of sorting out what's 
constructive and helpful and what's just insulting and just ignoring what's insulting and engaging what is helpful to me. That's what my mum used to tell me when I was bullied at school, just ignore it. It didn't do any good. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, if, if, if even to this day, if I see something, you know, insulting, usually I can just ignore it. But if there's a lot of it, then yeah, it does still hurt a little bit. But I just don't engage it. And so it passes a lot faster, you know, if I'm not engaging it actively and I just kind of look at it, get a little hurt by it, but then I just move on and don't get bogged down inside of it. And, you know, it's a lot better process from that. I think one of the things with the internet too, that obviously differs from being, being bullied in high school is that there are so many people who can bear witness to what's going on. So it's never just you judging. I mean, unless you get a private email or a private message and stuff, but that said someone on oh, Reddit yeah. thread is just being an asshole. Yeah, it's really weird. Like, it, I mean, I think this is probably true for everyone, but this comes in waves, right? Like, you'll have one wave where, you know, everything's going great. Like, when I was doing E-League last year, people were supporting my content a lot back then. People were really positive towards me. Then the Smith thing happened. It kind of swayed into a negative. And here towards the end of this year, it's kind of swung back positive a little bit. Um, so I think it just comes and goes in ways, man. And it just depends on whether the vocal minority starts to, you know, be able to get a little bit of traction because typically – Typically, it's only negative stuff that builds traction. Like, if you do a really good job at an event, people probably just aren't going to say anything. It's only if you did something horribly wrong is it going to really get brought up. And, and so you, you kind of learn that the negative voices are usually going to be the louder ones because the positive people, the people that liked it, typically don't have a reason to say anything. They just enjoy it and move on with their lives. Um, so, so you kind of you kind of see it from that way. Don't get me wrong, like, you know, there still is sometimes like a positive thread that'll that'll build traction about somebody. Like Vince has certainly had that happen lately when he did like EPL and, and Blast and stuff like that, and he deserves it. Um, but there are plenty of other people who do fantastic jobs that you don't hear anything about. And then, yeah, dude, like it'll be someone who's super talented that everyone loves. And then just one day, all of a sudden, everybody just dislikes that person for a little while. Like, look at the wave that Similar went through in the CSGO community. I mean, the dude was elite. He's one of the best. And then for, like, a short period of time, people were like, eh, actually, I'm kind of sick of Similar for whatever reason. And then eventually people were like, oh, he's done so good this event. He's back. You know, and then people were really sad that he was leaving for Overwatch. And it's just like, man, like, it, it, it's just so, fl like, flaky and inconsistent. It, it's so hard to read too much into it. Do you really think that the, the community got sick of Semler and then Semler got sick of it? Or, or was it the other know. way around? I'm not sure. I know Simler was also going through some stuff in his, his personal life. Like, I know he had, I think he spoke about it publicly on a podcast he did with The Score. Um if people are interested, I, I think it was, you know, he had like a loss in his family. Like he lost like a relative and also lost like a close friend. And so he was kind of in a bad mental state because of that. He sounded and, depressed. Yeah. I mean, I think he was. And I think that, you know, he was also struggling because instead of like properly grieving that situation, he tried to force himself to keep working. And I think that that maybe caused some issues. So I don't know, like, I'm not going to speak for the guy. I have no idea, but, um, I think that, yeah, as, I, I think that certainly a lot of factors play into that kind of thing. Classic man's way of dealing with something. I, f I feel some grief, therefore I need to work up. I mean, I did the same thing. You know, my mom passed away. I, I literally went to an event three weeks after the funeral. Mm -hmm. You know, like it kept me going. And were you holding in? I mean, did that grief come out at some point? Of course. Yeah, just not on camera. I've always been pretty good about not letting stuff like that. Like, I've had a lot of shit happen in my personal life that would... You know, if, if I let that out on camera, it'd be horrible. But I've always been pretty good about being able to kind of box that in. I still deal with it, but I just make sure it's not on camera in front of everyone. And I think that that goes for every single person. Like, I'm not some special case. Every single broadcast talent makes sacrifices, goes through stress, deals with, you know, relationships, especially people who are barely home. Think about how hard it is for them to manage relationships whenever they're never home. You know, like, all of us go through that stuff. We're all human. You know, it's just that it doesn't come out on broadcast because that's how it's supposed to be. Well, speaking about the talent, I've heard you describe going to an event and being with the other staff in the green room as like a family reunion. So who's, who's family in the scene for you? Everyone. All of them. I love, I love everyone that I've worked with, man. Like, Vince in particular has been a huge friend of mine. Um, but certainly I mix in with uh, a lot of, like, the, the NA people I've worked with for years. 
um, you know, people like Van Silly have worked for for very long, work with for a very long time. Speaking of NA, you are mm-hmm. you are you are basically the NA expert. Blessing and a curse. Blessing. Why is it a curse? because uh, I think people, I feel like sometimes I get pigeonholed into only knowing about NA, and so that like makes people think that maybe I don't know as much about EU or other regions. When in reality, like I follow all the top teams in the world. I guess well, my next question was going to be, which NA team do you think will go the furthest mm-hmm. in the major? I've got a bit of a hard on for Cloud9 on this podcast. but um, I think that's the most reasonable assumption to make, especially when you consider that Liquid has to use Zeus for the major, right? So they're not even going to be able to play with their you know normal lineup. Um, I mean, what other NA teams even, like, well, Misfits is there, but three of their players or two of their players are French. Um, so they're not really like a full, they're like a mixture team and they've had some pretty cool results lately, but I don't know. I mean, I think they could make it. I, what is it? It's not even the group stage anymore. Is it? It's like they renamed everything. So I don't even know how to refer to things anymore, but yeah, certainly of all the teams that have North American players involved, you know, cloud nine being a full U S team. Um, yeah, I would think that given their current situation compared to everyone else's, they should have the best chance to succeed. What do you think is the next step for them to be like a major winning team? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just time. I think it's also just about, um, I think one of the biggest things I see wrong with cloud nine that could be a potential problem going forward is the fact that they have so many aggressively prone riflers that unfortunately at least one of them is forced to kind of take a step back and be more supportive and they don't get to play their strong suits because of that. And I think Rush is probably the the, the one that took the hit on T-sides. And on some maps, even Stewie plays a little bit more on the edges of the map, which I know isn't like his preferred spots to play. He likes to be in the action part of the main control group. So, yeah, I just think that maybe they have too many aggro riflers and maybe they could benefit from having like another passive player on the team come in. But the problem is, like, you don't want to replace them. Those guys are all so good. If one of them can learn how to be more supportive and be comfortable and okay with that, then, you know, it should be fine. And I think Rush seems to be, like, fine with it mentally. Um, and I think he still does a, a pretty good job. But he has taken a bit of a hit compared to his star days in Optic. Um, I've heard him maybe, say that he was fine with that change. Yep. Yeah, he is. So, I mean, that's great that he has that mentality, but it's, I mean, the guy was a star entry fragger on Optic and won a big international title with that team. So it kind of stinks not to see him entry fragging, you know what I mean? Like, you have to kind of wonder what would happen if he was entry fragging somewhere else. Like, would he be more successful individually? Or does that matter to him? Is he just more worried about winning as a team? Seems like he's more worried about winning as a team and, and is fine with, you know, being more supportive. And so that's all well and dandy. So we'll just have to see how that plays out, is my point. And then the other thing, I mean, people could point to is maybe just like leadership. Like, is Tarek really going to be able to develop into develop well enough as an IGL to lead a team to a title? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think so far it's been pretty good progress, and I think that they are a little bit more tactical than maybe people expected. I think they have had a little bit more like elaborate executes. Maybe people had thought they would have. Um, I think they still do kind of rely on like playmakers and being aggressive and just swarming and trading bomb sites and using all those aggro riflers. But I, I think that they do have a couple of more pages of the playbook than maybe people anticipated they would have. So as long as they keep progressing in that regard, I don't see why they couldn't win some titles. What do you think it is about Tarek that uh, that makes people question him? I think he just had like this reputation of being a peanut brain for whatever reason because of like people's streams on Twitch or like different you know, comments made about him by other players or, like, jokes that were made, like, memes and and different things like that that kind of made people anticipate it. And, I mean, look, any situation where you have someone take over an IGL who doesn't have a reputation for being an IGL or or some type of tactical genius, anytime that happens, people are are skeptical. Uh, Same thing happened with Stewie when he did it for Cloud9 back in the day. Same thing has happened for, for other players, like when Nico did it for Mouse Sports, or uh, any time that some new name that you don't know of as an in-game leader takes over an in-game leader job, you you always wonder how it's going to go. And I think for Tarek, it was no different. Like, yeah, I think he led briefly for Optic before he went to Cloud9, but, I mean, Optic was in such disarray, man. Like, you couldn't really make heads or tails of how that was actually going. 
So I, I think, you know, it's just natural skepticism when someone takes over a new role, particularly one that important. Optics still kind of feel like they're in a bit of disarray, don't they? Yeah, sure. I mean, they're, they're role swapping as we speak, right? They just moved Alu into lurking and Mixwell back to opping. That was the big adjustment they made before. Which seemed to work quite well. Yeah, I mean, I think Mixwell's a good op. I wish he'd just embrace it. For whatever reason, he doesn't embrace it. But I think that if he did, and if he continues to do so, he will be one of the best out there. He definitely was <laughs> the best opera playing for North American team when he was playing for Optic SMA and AWP. He was far more impactful than guys like JDM and Skadoodle and stuff when he was doing it. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it also, again, it's Freiburg being an in-game leader, the exact same skepticism. Is he going to be able to do it? Is he going to be able to develop that skill set? Would Optic be better off bringing in a more traditional in-game leader and replacing someone? You know, it's possible. It already seems like the environment's a little bit tainted there when you've seen some of the leaks come out about, you know, HS, for example, um, like all the rumors about him being removed and stuff. You have to kind of wonder if that was going to happen or not if there was interest in that and you have to wonder if that's kind of soured the relationship. And then I guess in general, also people are always going to be skeptical about multi, like, like multi national lineups when, when people are having to speak their second language to, to play and, and the, the, you know, different obstacles that come with that. Who do you think your MVP of the year is in NA? I don't know. Like it would probably either be like a lesion twist from liquid or, Stewie or Tarek from Cloud9. Like, Tarek catapulted on like the latter stages of Optic and has been solid on Cloud9 ever since he joined. So he's definitely been delivering. Um, but, you know, Twist has also been huge for Liquid. Elise has been huge for Liquid for a while. So, I mean, I think you could go a couple different directions between those players. In, in the last episode I did, I interviewed this 16-year-old hacker and um interesting yeah <laughs> it, it i kind of started off completely tilted by him uh and his attitude but the net result was that i sort of ended up questioning how i'm spending my time and how much time i spent playing the game do you ever question that yeah i mean i do wonder maybe not playing because i don't play that much actually most of my time is spent like doing research or creating content but yeah sometimes i do wonder if I could be doing something different with my time throughout the day that would be better for me, particularly like in my career path or making me, you know, financially better off. If maybe I should just like stop, you know, quit trying to do this and just go get a traditional job, just give up esports and just go do something else. But the, the, the biggest obstacle to me making that decision has just been, you know, how do you give up your passion? Right. Like everyone always tells you to find a job that you love going to every day to find what makes you happy. Well, I've found that it's not working out as I had hoped as far as it being like a stable source of income, but it's still what I love doing. So it's like, you know, what's more important, like doing what I love or being financially more well off? Um, I think to a certain degree, like you have to make enough to pay the bills right and, and deal with student loans and all that good stuff. So, I mean, you have to be responsible, but you know yeah so i definitely have that debate all the time especially lately you know when it's been so uncertain you know if i have a next gig coming up um so yeah i don't know i, d I definitely think about whether or not i would have been better off um doing something else with my time than esports but i also do wonder if i had been better off not spending three years getting a master's degree in history too <laughs> you know like certainly for the amount of money i paid for it and the fact that i'm not really pursuing a career path that really relates to that degree directly has so I, I think you can do that about anything in life you know especially if things aren't going particularly well you know you you might question a bunch of stuff but i mean it's already over now so there's not much you can really do about it. all you can do is you know figure out what you want to do next and so that's kind of a debate i'm having now i guess with esports that's a quick question one of the things i think csgo and playing it really steals is my reading time i used to read a lot more do you read mm-hmm yeah, I, I try to read a little bit here and there. Um, I, most of the reading I do, though, I feel like is esports related, like some type of article or interview or feature piece or something like that. But I definitely still try to dabble in, in a little bit of reading uh, here and there. Are you reading anything interesting right now? <laughs> Nothing interesting. I think I've actually been trying to read up on 
like some stuff related to like public relations and marketing and stuff like that. Just because, uh, you know, communications was part of my d- degree path when I was in college. And so I was kind of trying to read more material in that direction, because if I do pivot away from esports, I'm trying to think, well, what would I pivot into? Because I don't want to pivot into history education. Like, that's just not what I want to do. I thought I did, you know, until I found esports, and I realized well, that's what I want to do. Um, and so that's what I still want to do. But if for whatever reason, I can't make that work, then it's about thinking about, you know, what else are my skills applicable to and so looking into that direction, I've just been kind of reading some material on that. Um, and, you know, every now and then I'll read like some fiction, you know, like I read Ready, Ready, Ready Player One recently, uh, which like that movie's coming out soon. I read that book uh, not too long ago. Um, and, you know, like a couple other things here and there I've like picked up randomly uh, to read. You want to hear a story about Ready Player One? Sure. I was, um, had a mate who was an, uh, an agent and he was um, Ernest Klein's agent. And this was about... It was about 2011 now, about six years ago. And he was struggling as an agent and, uh, a bit. And I met him in this cafe in New York. And uh, he's got this really weird expression on his face. I'm like, man, what's going on? He's like, oh, man, I just, I just broke up with my girl. Well, she just broke up with me. It's been like five years. I'm devastated. And I'm like, okay. You, you kind of seem like you're not devastated, but you are. And he's like, yeah. I just sold Ernest Klein's book for a million dollars and Spielberg's going to direct it. But fuck, man, this girl. Like, ah! <laughs> so I see this trailer. It's definitely about, a tough day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I see this trailer about Ready Player One. All I can see is this heartbroken dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Christmas is coming up. What are you hoping to get for Christmas? What am I hoping to get for Christmas? Yeah. What do you want to see under that tree? I don't, I don't really have anything, actually. Come on. Come on. I really don't, man. Like, I mean, obviously, it's always fun to get, like, new tech stuff, you know, like a new computer or a new monitor or something like that. But, I mean, it's nothing that, like, I really – there's nothing that I have this, like, burning desire for. You know, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. Like, even just getting, like, new clothes or something like that is always uh, fine for me. Yeah, there's nothing really – Nothing, like, really that I want that badly. Have you reached that age where it's, like, socks and underpants kind of make you a bit excited? Not makes me excited, but it's just one of those things where I feel like I pretty much have it. I'm not, like, a guy who really gets into commodities like that. Like, I'm not a guy who, like, wants to collect a bunch of shoes or, you know, you know, collect a bunch of anything else or, like, buy a bunch of jackets or whatever the case may be. Like, I don't really have a thing that I... Like I just, I guess I'm just not really a big part of that. Like as long as I have a good working computer, I have some clothes to wear. You know, I, I have a place to stay. I have some internet. You know, I'm usually pretty happy. I think the biggest thing that would, be, I mean, I'd love to travel more. I'd love to be able to afford to travel more. So I guess one cool Christmas gift would be able to just like travel more places and get to, you know, check out new places I haven't been before. You know, that's always a lot of fun. So I guess I could do that. There's an interesting, like, uh, there's quite a few people in the esports scene who, who fetishize shoes, isn't there? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I have some, I mean, I like shoes too, don't get me wrong, but <laughs> yeah, it's just not something like I, shoes. as long as I have a couple of pairs, I'm fine. Like, I don't need, like, 20 pairs of right. shoes or something like that, right? I just need, uh, usually I like to have, like, one nice pair of shoes in, like, each color that I think is important. It's like a, a nice black pair of shoes, maybe, like, a nice blue pair of shoes, nice brown pair of shoes or whatever. Maybe, like, one pair of shoes to work out in that I don't mind getting messed up. You got any heels in the cupboard? Oh, absolutely, man. Just Saturday some, night, some, throw some heels on, sexy walking around. Black numbers? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I just don't get what they, and they, like, they post these sneakers and they're like, oh my god, it's finally arrived. It's like, it just looks like a fucking sneaker to me. I don't care. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people like to post like their Yeezys or Ultra Boost or whatever. Like, I own a pair of Ultra Boost, but I don't post it. <sighs> like, it's just one of those things where it's just not important to me. Full disclosure here, I don't actually know what Ultra Boost are. I assume they're some type of shoe. I've never understood Yeezys. Do we really need to give Kanye West our money uh, anymore? I mean, he was broke there for a bit, wasn't he? And and isn't that, I mean, didn't he make millions of dollars? Surely at some point he's been profligate and we shouldn't be rewarding him for this. <sighs> Tough life questions. Anyway, back to the interview. Enough to share. I'd rather share like a cool experience I had or like a cool song that I heard or like a cool place that I went or... Where do you want to travel? Anywhere, man. Uh, I mean, I've 
the thing is, is like I said, I've been to a lot of places because of esports, but I haven't really gotten to explore them that much because it's so busy. Anywhere. I've heard Syria is good at this time of year. I like just exploring through Europe, even going to Asia. I haven't been to Asia really ever. Like I've never been to like a Korea or Japan or China or anything like that. So I think going there would be pretty cool just to experience like a different culture. Just, I mean, I, I like, you know, beautiful landscapes. So just seeing like different like mountain areas or, um, you know, lake or river areas to me, it's just kind of cool. Just kind of sucking that all in and just like seeing nature or whatever. Um, and also, like, I really enjoy just trying new things. Like, I went, like, snowboarding for the first time last year, and I had a lot of fun doing that. Doing that again would be a lot of fun. So I think I I, I think I cherish, like, experiences more than I cherish commodities. But I guess some experiences are a commodity, right? Like, you know, taking a vacation to some brilliant place. Um, so, so, yeah, but I, I think I like to focus more on that than items. Well, I wish you the happiest of Christmases. I hope you find two tickets to somewhere exotic under the tree. <laughs> Definitely appreciate the the kind words, and I hope that you also enjoy your holiday, and thanks for, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And there you have it. What a lovely guy. Hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more of him in 2018. In the meantime, you can follow him on the Twitter handle at followdust, and you can check out his YouTube and incredible amount of content about CSGO on Dust Moret. That's the name of his YouTube channel, D-U-S-T-M-O-U-R-E-T. And now it's time for Toxic Player of the Week. <sighs> this week, the dubious honor goes to a young man who goes by the steam handle 121suck. That's one colon one S-U-C-C. Now, my mates had gone to bed. I was stung with a bout of insomnia. One more match, I said. And you know. That's when you know. It's time to go to bed. It's always the wrong thing to do. Why is it always wrong? It's the golden rule of CS. Never one more. It's like you offend Lord Gaben and he strikes you down with that unhappy, racist young man on your team whose parents not only didn't validate his feelings once, they put him in a cage and threw shit at him. So I got on the mic, round one of nuke, because I'm a nice guy. Hi guys, I said, and I immediately got the shut the fuck up, I hate the sound of your voice. Now, does this sound familiar? I'm sure this is not the first time it's happened to you guys either. This guy proceeded to hurl abuse at me. He got quite colourful for a while there, quite creative, and then his imagination seemed to settle down all of a sudden, like the howling wind that disappears from a mountain valley without explanation, and he simply switched to saying, Hey Blue, hey Blue, hey, hey Blue because my colour was blue. So I muted him, and we get to the final round, like round 23 or something, and finally one of the other players goes, hey, have you actually muted this guy? And I'm like, yeah, I have. And uh, so when I unmuted him, he was still going. This is like 45 minutes of him going, hey, blue, hey, hey, blue. So points, one-to-one suck. Points for persistence. Um, and I'm sorry that technique never really worked with your parents. Just to give you an idea of the pedigree of this fine young specimen of Australian culture and breeding, his other names on his Steam account were, and take note, Gaben, Mad Dog, Your Boy, I Fucking Hey Niggers, and then uh, in a well-advised move of grammatical responsibility, I Fucking Hate Niggers, Gaylord, and Mayonnaised Nigger. So one-to-one suck if you're out there. I hope you burn in the fiery pits of a supportive peer group whom you meet post-high school or post-university or post-whatever dead-end job you're working now and you are reborn as a well-meaning phoenix of good manners and pleasantness. One day I think there's going to be an expose on the um, racist um, pit, I guess, for want of a better uh, noun. That is steam. That is where the podcast ends today. If you want to get in touch, contact me, the truth CSGO podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at, at truthcsgopodcast. Enjoy the game.